0: Welcome to The Lubbers Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. And the two of us together are re-reading the Aubrey maturin novels of Patrick O'Brien. Mike, where have we got to in our current novel? Tell us, would you please? And give us a hint about what's coming this week.
1: Oh, I'd be delighted! Thanks, in the Yellow Admiral. We were in Chapter Five last week, and it started off reminding us of all these past naval disasters in these seas where they're patrolling off of Brest. And you know, we had, however, not disaster seas, but a really calm, pleasant day where we had the loss of Gagan, that young, beautiful oboe-playing midshipman who fell from the top. So big, big thing in the last chapter. And a Brittany pilot took the bologna through some very thick fog to get close enough to put Stephen and his intelligence colleague ashore while leaving Jack anxious and grieved. He, you know, very worried about Stephen being ashore there. Well, this time, Jack continues to worry about Stephen. He teaches trigonometry, upsets the Admiral again, and all is not well at home. I, you know, no spoilers, but here's a hint. Mrs. Williams, Sophie's mother, is back. There's a potential prize, a blow, and an unexpected time ashore.
0: Wow, Mike, plenty to go out here. And some real big shocks, I think, especially for all of us on Team Jack. Let's get into it and see where the chapter takes us. Now, Jack has been experiencing grief and anxiety. His grief and anxiety as we start the chapter is... Grief about the loss of Gagan and anxiety as well about Stephen being ashore. This recedes, though, as they work the ship through the night to get back to the bay where they're stationed with the inshore squadron. Jack is watching to see what harm has come to his crew and his ship from the uh, lax but harsh discipline of the jobbing captain who'd been aboard the Bellona. When they finally leave shallow water and do wear ship, he's actually pretty satisfied with the way the ship's handled. But o- O'Brien gives us a little pointer here of where jack is at in his uh, in his mood still low in his spirits says the text he hated to think of stephen wandering about there on a hostile shore among so many more or less trustworthy foreigners that's a that's a very jack orb review of the world for us (laughs) too true yeah (laughs) he sits down to a fresh breakfast but of course it's a lonely one without Stephen. And that's really not entirely compensated by the fact that they have fresh provisions being inshore or being on the breast blockade here. Now, like like most things in life, uh, meals and stuff get interrupted when we need to hear about what's happening in the plot. And a midshipman is going to oblige here. He comes in and reports that the Alexandria is in sight. And Jack has a moment of Excitement. Perhaps she has mail. He really wants to hear about his daughters. He wants to hear about the village and what's happened with the uh, the neighbouring landowner, that reptile Griffiths, as he called him. He's hoping for more encouraging news from his lawyer. He wants to reread the proceedings, his mathematical journal, and all of this also brings to mind the the painful task that he still has of writing a letter to the parents of Midshipman Gagan. Up on deck, the officer of the watch and two midshipmen look at each other when Jack asks, where is the Alexandria? And they're looking at each other because this is a little sign here that all is still not quite well with Jack. Because most people can see the Alexandria easily, but Jack's got this problem with his eye. He has to twist his head and bring his good eye to bear so that he can spot the Alexandria. And Mike, this exchange was a little bit odd right at the beginning of the chapter, let's just say that we're being reminded about Jack's defective eyesight for reasons that are being planted now to be paid off later in the chapter. So with with, with all that in mind, the signals get exchanged. The Alexandria is a letdown for Jack. No news, she says, and no letters.
1: Well, Jack heads off visits the young gentleman's classroom to review their workings. And, and today's workings are going to be dead reckonings because there was no noon observation the day before with all the weather and the fog and everything. Well, the only difference he finds between the papers from any of the young gentlemen is the degree of neatness. So I'm taking this as, as kind of a tip that, you know, everybody's copied everybody else's work here and some some doing a better job of copying. And as he hands the papers back, you know, Jack kind of checks this idea and says ask one student what a sign is that student is incapable of telling him so he stops ask everybody to write down their answer on a piece of paper and turn it in and and O'Brien fills this in he says that you know a lot of these boys had been ashore learning Latin perhaps Greek or Hebrew or French you know while they were getting nominal time on ships books and not really learning yeah. about navigation yeah and Jack actually catches one boy who attended a nautical academy whispering to a friend. So he calls him out, tells him to jump up to the masthead until he's sent for. And by the way, collect all the papers on your way out the room and and, Mm. and bring them to me here. So, you know, Jack, not not real happy about this. And O'Brien tells us that, you know, it's hard to tell who's more distressed. The schoolmaster Who's, who's been trying to teach all this stuff or Jack, who you, know, who, you know, this is so important for because both of them realize that the class is, you know, completely ignorant when it comes to the first elements of navigations here. So Jack says, all right, not to worry. We're going to start again. He calls for the joiner, orders a blackboard assembled for tomorrow's class and says, you know, that he's going to stand there with him and he's going to draw diagrams, write definitions until everyone in the room has it by heart. And o- O'Brien kind of tells us, you know, given his mood, absolute determination, his build, and his immense authority, the class files out silently, looking grave. And I think they're, Ooh. you know, what we're usually checking the glass to see how the weather's going to be. You know, their their glass in terms of inside the classroom, the weather's looking like it could be a little stormy.
0: Yeah, cool. some squalls coming now. We roll straight into the next day when Jack takes these uh, trainees through signs and cosecants and all the other ratios in between, all the words and the diagrams and the definitions, all these tools and techniques to help you find your t- position in the ocean with no land and no landmarks. And even though they've got textbooks that tell them this already, they have charts in their sea chests, even though the schoolmaster has been trying to teach them, nothing could compare, says O'Brien, to the concentrated, forceful instructions of Jove himself, of the 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 head godhead, if you like, uh, and the ship is making its usual trips backwards and forwards across the patrol ground, and that gives the captain all the time in the world for trigonometry. And, and Mike, this was interesting to me for two reasons. First of all, this is a regular thing that we've seen, right there. When Jack is feeling distracted or gloomy, he reaches for mathematics and he reaches for an available uh, ignorant midshipman or two and kind of knocks some knowledge into them. So he steps into this role of teacher captain when he's feeling uneasy. And maybe it's not fair for me to do this. I'm thinking to what's coming ahead in this chapter, and I'm thinking Jack is reaching for a little bit of status, a little bit of confidence that says, He's the linchpin of somebody's life here, and he's going to give them the things that they need. Let's see. Let's see what comes next. Finally, anyhow, uh, a, bl- a blessed Thursday comes. in. Thursday's blessed because it's making man day a little bit of time off, or at least more leisurely time for the crew. While this is happening, a ship's sails are spotted. It's the Ramillies, Jack is super happy that the Ramillies is coming in with them because uh, he knows Captain Fanshaw in command. Um, They also spot, at the same time, the frigate Doris and, big news, the squadron's mail cutter. And everyone's glad to see this. Harding is waiting to hear from his pregnant wife and therefore spreads uh, what is called an unreasonable amount of canvas in pursuit of the mail cutter. But the Doris gets there first. When the Bellona finally gets to pick up her mail, Jack and Harding and Jack's clerk, Sort out their mail and distribute it through the ship. So, Mike, I, I think we've had this particular Captain Fanshawe once or twice, but we've we've had quite a few fanshaws of one kind or another in the canon when you when you go back and search, right? There's there's quite a quite an epidemic of them.
1: There there really is. This apparently is one of, of O'Brien's go to names here. And and there was a real life family of, of 18th, 19th century fanshaws who were naval officers. But in one book, we have a Fanshawe called Commissioner of the Plymouth Dockyard. That's like an Ionian mission and Commodore. Uh, Port Admiral uh, Fanshawe is called in Letter of Mark. And and those sound like they were more based on the real naval family, one, one of whom was, in fact, a commissioner in Plymouth. Now, that was Robert Fanshawe. But this is now yeah. William or Billy Fanshawe, who's married to Dolly. On the other one, there was a daughter, not this wife. And yeah. so I went to the Patrick O'Brien muster book, and actually there are five or six fanshaws in the canon. We're going to see yet wow. another one again later. So uh, if you're if you're trying to keep up with your fanshaws, you absolutely need a scorecard. And it just might be that we're kind of mixing up names and details here. As O'Brien writes ahead with one of these go-to names. Gosh,
0: well, th- there's no mixing up the name on the first envelope that Jack turns to, is there? <laughs>
1: No, you're absolutely right, Ian. You know, and we've heard before that Jack has this superstition. You always take the first letter on the top of your pile and read it first. Yeah, you don't look yeah. through like Sophie does. So Jack opens the top letter. It's badly addressed, but but it's a familiar hand. He recognizes the handwriting, but, you know, clearly... You know, something's going on. And he's very anxious about this. You know, he, he left Sophie on indifferent terms after that whole thing about Mrs. Oakes. And he hopes to read that Sophie's affection is now fully restored. This letter, he notes, is only five days old when he sees the, the date on it. And it says, Mr. Aubrey, it is with the deepest, the very deepest concern that I must tell you I have been shown unanswerable proof of your infidelity. In open contempt of your promise before God's altar, you lay with a woman named Amanda Smith in Canada and got her with child. Deny it if you can. I have the proofs and I mean to take advice. In the meantime, I shall give the admiral notice to leave my house at Ashgrove and return there with the children. And boy, I'm I'm just pretty blown away at this wow. point. Yeah. You know, this, this sounds to me like, you know, A lawyer is standing there dictating this for Sophie to, you know, kind of write write fair or something. Now, Jack notices those lines were relatively clear, but the lines that follow are tear blotted and scratched through. And Jack's trying to make it out. And he's just gotten to one phrase that says, You left her bed and came into mine. He, He gets that and he's called on deck. So this is clearly. About what Jack was hoping to read from Sophie and this kind of coming on top of all this anxiety about Stephen being on shore. I'm, you know, ouch.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a big, ouch De- devastating for Jack. I was not sure. I mean, uh, I've, I've got the kind of the plot followers brain in my head going, Oh, I, I wonder whether O'Brien had always intended for this Amanda Smith thing to finally come back to bite Jack or whether he'd kind of left it on the back burner and found found a moment to use it here, you know, just, just how carefully he had he plotted his arc. We should talk some more about what, what this means for Jack and his character later on, but it's an absolute hammer blow. Hammer blow for us, the readers, those of us who are team Jack, if you like, just as much as it's a hammer blow for him himself. He doesn't get time to process it yet because the letter reading has been interrupted. There's a report from Lieutenant Harding that the Ramillies has signaled Captain Repair aboard, and Billy Fanshawe can do that because he's senior to Jack Aubrey. Meanwhile, Jack picks up another letter from Sophie that was dated a week before she had written the one that he's just read. And this is, this is agonizing, Mike, the ju- juxtaposition of the letter from the before time and the letter from the now time. In this just a few days earlier letter, she's much happier. She's been asking his forgiveness for her bad temper as they had left, and she's reporting a little bit of gossip about Her mother, her mother's friend, Mrs. Morris, had finally married her worthless manservant. The two of them had run off with all of the money from the illegal betting business, along with anything else that they could carry. And in her reduced state, in her distress, Mrs. Williams had sent off all but one of her servants, almost destroyed her apartment in Bath, and with the help of Diana, had been brought back to Wilcombe. With the help also of kind dear mrs oaks this is the key thing Mike, dear mrs oaks mrs oaks has been forgiven rehabilitated in in the in the world just a few days before sophie's devastating letter dear mrs oaks had helped to house mother williams temporarily in jack's study and talks about the uh, the wardrobe and the chest blocking her bed from jack's precious ship models and surveying instruments so she's saying you know i've got all your man cave gear safe here and your mother-in-law's not going to bump into it they report about the plan to move her into the girls' room. That's contingent upon the girls coming back from school and uh, hoping to get Mrs. Williams back to Bath before too long with a much more suitable companion. And, Mike, this is agonizing to have had the first, the most recent letter read, and then straight away to have realized just how, how okay everything was, and then how much of that has been completely destroyed by her discovery of the letters and her writing of the latest letter. It's really, really poignant. O'Brien really knows how to twist the knife. He's twisting it for Jack, and I think he's twisting it uh, for, the, for the readers as well. We had Sophie asking for forgiveness. We had the rehabilitation of Mrs. Oaks. We had oh, so, so much in favor of Jack, but it's all been thrown away.
1: He even twists the, the knife a little bit more as, as Jack continues reading on this letter. You know, She says to Jack, you know, don't worry about sending money. We have everything we need from the farm and the dairy and the kitchen garden and the poultry yard. And now Diana's insisting on giving us a very handsome rent for her wing of the house and for the renewed stabling. You know, she's got to build up the stable yard now because you know, she had had her cousins help, you know, the cousin Chumley who had, you know, loaned her his coach and horses here. Uh, he had helped her pawn her blue Peter diamond. So she's back in funds. She's breeding Arabs again. She's looking to buy a coach and six. So, here we go, Jack, you know, this is this wife that will do anything for you. Get by, find a way while you're at sea. And, you know, even though our fortunes are miserable, we haven't heard about these other lawsuits, Stephen and Diana are doing great now. They're in money again. And, and so, as you say, Ian, this juxtaposition continues to get worse here.
0: Yeah, and it's agony as well that Stephen's not there. There's good news in there for Stephen, but he's ashore. and he, he also can't be around to comfort or advise Um, His friend. Yes. Jack wonders what I think we're all wondering as well, which was how how could I have been so foolish as to leave these letters from Amanda Smith in a box in amongst his other official letters? Oh, come on, on, Jack. (laughs) At at least that. Um, We get a little insight into how he can account for himself and for his behavior with regard to Amanda Smith. He thinks that a certain liking or a certain gratitude had stopped him from throwing them away as as if that would have been somehow indecent, even though she was an extremely silly person and a, a frivolous person. The text says he felt no particular guilt except for this foolishness by his code, a man who was directly challenged. And here I think we're talking about offered the opportunity by an Amanda Smith, a man who was directly challenged must in honesty engage. Anything else would be intolerably insulting yet. Had he known of this miserable old woman's prying, he's talking about Mother Williams, and her malice, he would certainly have played the scrub in Canada. Uh, And Mike, we've got lots of bits of Jack Aubrey's character very economically written into this one remark here, that he resents Mrs. Williams, and he resents the situation, and he doesn't regard himself as having responsibility. Who else but Jack could have been so naive as, and so misguided as to keep hold of his mistress's letters. I think we we know from earlier on that he had hung on to them and used to hide out in his uh, astronomy tower to read them. He's a little bit proud of his masculinity and about the you know male males responding to a challenge. He's naive at not being found out. He's a bit sentimental towards women, even frivolous women in very unsatisfactory relationships, and a little bit tied up by this really weird, perverse sense of propriety towards women who lust after him. And that's 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 so much of Jack Aubrey in a nutshell, right?
1: It, it, it is, it is. It's really, you know, I'm scratching my head here. You know, maybe we can come back to this a little bit about who is Jack in the midst yeah. of all this?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: As soon as O'Brien's told us that, he also, through Jack, you know, reminds us about Sophie. So who is Sophie? And, and he says that Jack knows Sophie's attitude about these matters, you know, for her... You know, he has this, this interesting phrase, any levity in speaking of even a looseness in conversation that reached nowhere near criminal conversation was criminal to her. In other words, she takes this thing very seriously. You know, like we, we, yeah. we used to have a, a saying that says, you know, you know, if there's even a question of conflict of interest, you have a conflict of interest. Well, for Sophie, yeah. it's like if you're if you're talking about giggling, you know, and flirting, You've you've done the deed here, so you know, you you yeah. calm down, young man here. But um, as Jack is thinking about okay, Sophie's gonna take this really hard. I get that. Harding, you know, the first lieutenant, runs in to announce that he and his wife have a healthy, pink, cheerful new baby daughter. And Jack gives him joy, saying, you know, he's sure she'll turn out to be a good un. And and I couldn't help but thinking here, hmm, I'll oh. bet in my mind anyways, I don't know about Jack. Did Jack marry a gooden? Yes, you know, where where's the real Sophie in this? Just like where's the real Jack in this right now?
0: Right. And that, that sets a whole series of doubts running for me about what, what O'Brien's telling us about Sophie's character. Because I, I I can't say that I look at anything that she's done on written about that casts her as not a gooden, but clearly the situation has has set her up in Jack's mind as somebody who's who's against him. And that's that's a tragedy, but we'll we'll talk some more about that later, I think. Meanwhile, Jack's got to answer the signal. He's got to go and do his duty. He heads over to the Ramillies and he's piped aboard. Captain Fanshaw, his old friend Billy Fanshaw, hopes that Jack had had an agreeable postbag. And Jack says, it wasn't quite what I wished. Um, perhaps something better may appear. And ironically, Mike, that's something that Jack and Sophie had been saying to each other as they were, you know, in, in a companionable way, opening their mail together just a few chapters ago. Jack in return asks about Fanshawe's mail and hears about a charming letter from his wife. Fanshawe's got good news about his family as well. His wife and his children are all fine. And now Fanshawe has to do his official duty. The reason that he'd hung the signal out is that he is required to, and, and air quotes around this word, acquaint. He is required to acquaint Jack with the news that on the night Jack picked up the pilot from Marmillie's and left for the Raz de Seine, the night that he went to put Stephen ashore, Two French frigates had sailed from Brest and are now attacking British and allied merchantmen with great success. Fanshaw, again as the admiral's mouthpiece, says, "This cannot but be attributed to your negligence in not keeping a good lookout, since, from all appearance, the Frenchmen must have crossed your wake." I am therefore," says Fanshaw, "to reprimand you severely, and you are hereby severely reprimanded." Yes, sir," said Jack, without expression. Is that all? And and I love how these two men who know each other are kind of playing the role for each other a little bit here. Fanshawe says no with more expression than he had intended and looks down again at the paper in front of them. He says he is also under orders to require Jack to proceed to off Ushant without the loss of a moment and to report to the flag. There, again, he's speaking with the Admiral's words, you will be attached to the offshore squadron where it is hoped that other and perhaps sharper eyes will diminish the very grave consequences of such unseemly negligence. Mm. And my, uh, Jack and Fanshawe are both kind of sitting here like almost like two naughty schoolboys, one of whom is temporarily in the role of prefect. They both clearly want to comment on this prose that the admirals put down in writing here, uh, but they're not going to. <laughs> Fanshaw invites Jack to dine as a sort of compensatory gesture, and Jack says the phrase "without the loss of a minute" stands in the way, and then he goes on and describes how he is taken, as he says, in adultery without a goddamn leg to stand on. And Fanshaw is super sympathetic. Oh, my dear Jack, I know, I know, I know only too well. Come, drink up your brandy, and I will see you over the side. So Mike, after a a, a really uh, dark and downbeat and disheartening set of moments for Jack, at at least one of his friends is willing to wine him and dine him and put him over the side in comfort.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, and we kind of, you know, it's it's fascinating. Again, we're going to come back to this, but we get a great example of, you know, the kind of world that Jack lives in. We've learned before about the kind of world that Sophie lives in. And these are two very different worlds. You know, a woman in every port, you know, a man who is forever faithful, regardless of how things are at home. So I'm loving, again, the way O'Brien sets this up. It's again, is this a story about ships shooting at sea? No, this is a story about the human condition. (laughs) Here we are. Well, back on the bologna, Jack asked the master to shape a course to Ushant, and and wherever the winds are likely to put the offshore squadron, you know, once we get there here. And O'Brien tells us that the offshore squadron is subject to even harder winds and seas than the more protected inshore squadron where Jack has been, where we'd heard about all these, you know, kind of wrecks and, and loss of life. Well, when they reach the squadron, the monstrous seas are even more worked up, uh, despite this heavy rain that usually kind of calms things a little bit. And when Jack prepares to go to the flagship, he misses his footing and the heaving barge falls into the water swirling around the bottom and then is there in this pouring rain on the trip over. So we've got a very damp uh, Jack Aubrey arriving to see the Admiral. Well, he has a very long wait to see the Admiral. And, you know, we're wondering is, is the Admiral just keeping him out here cooling his heels? And even though the captain of the ship is is very civil, Jack knows that any captain who's received a, a, a reprimand, much less a severe reprimand, is an infectious leper, especially on Stranra's ship. And so he does not inflict his remarks or his person on any of the officers. And he Finally is called in he walks into the admiral's cabin and it's not just the admiral this time it's the captain of the fleet seated next to him we've also got the admiral's secretary and his clerk sitting there and the admiral asks Jack what he has to say about the french frigates he allowed to slip past him Jack says that you know he regrets any frenchman that got out of breath, but he clarifies that you know when the admiral presses him he's not admitting that they went by him or acknowledging any responsibility and, and, and this is this scene really, boy, it kind of took on a formality, you know, I, and I guess it was yeah. set up right there with who's in the room. It's not just the admiral yeah. talking to Jack you know, about this you know, severe reprimand that he's pinned. But, you know, I'm kind of feeling like this is just like, it's got a little bit more gravity than that, given the whole audience yeah. he has here and two people kind of writing all this down.
0: You might even say inquisitorial, uh, sounding a lot like uh, a barrister, like a, a lawyer. The Admiral asks, where was your ship at sunset on the 27th? This sounds like an episode of Columbo. (laughs) One more thing, Captain Aubrey, one more thing. Um, Where was your ship on the 27th? Jack answers, and the Admiral asks how Jack then can explain, given the course of the frigates leaving Brest, how they must have passed astern of the Bellona, perhaps within sail, certainly within sight, all those things being true, then how had they got out? And Jack says he can't explain how, other than to say that he had lookouts posted who were all reliable seamen. And e- even more loyally, the admiral asks, "Do you deny the possibility of them having passed unseen?" And my, th- this is sounding, this is sounding like a court martial. Like you say, he's a there's a little mini panel here: the admiral and the flag, fleet captain, and we've got these. You know, do you deny that on the night in question you were? I'm I'm worried for Jack. Jack's managing to keep his countenance so far. He doesn't deny it, but he advances what you might call his defense. It was an uncommon thick night. Even his pilot, his local pilot had to feel his way along, Uh, only knew where they were by the flash of the surf, which we remember because it was pointed out to us really clearly in the previous chapter. He denies the possibility of the French frigates passing due to the fault or negligence of any of his people. And the Admiral says, well, so you blame it all on the weather then? And the Admiral says, well, if there needs to be blame, I do indeed lay it on the fog. And, and just to the, add to the kind of court-martial tones here that the Admiral invites in his colleague at this point.
1: Yeah, the, the colleague is the captain of the fleet. You know, he's yeah. the
0: officer chiefly
1: concerned with discipline. And so the Admiral asks him what he thinks. And Calvert, this this captain of the fleet, replies that in cases like this, it's best to gather all objective Evidence, and I'm thinking, oh, oh. <laughs> you know, and he says, you know, we'll need the ship's log, the officers and the midshipmen's logs. Well, you know, review all their remarks on the weather, especially if this becomes an important disciplinary matter or anyone asks for a court martial. And now I'm thinking, <sighs> you know, oh, yeah, this has really gotten it here. And Stranra considers this. And, and the clerk is is mending his pen, O'Brien tells us. It's kind of like everybody's paused and waiting. What are we going to write next here? And then Stranross says, you know, I don't think it'll come to that. If Captain Aubrey will solemnly declare that his ship was in a state of full preparedness on the 27th, I shall rest content. And I'm thinking, Ooh. yeah, I don't trust this guy at all. <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, this this. This guy who clearly has it in for Jack has clearly been upset with Jack, but he does to, you know, if, if you ask him, he'd say, hey, look, I come down on everybody. But um, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind <laughs> of wondering here, uh, you know, maybe if the Admiral's got an ulterior motive in this really heavy stuff.
0: Right. I mean, this all seems to be like a threat. Like I'm going to build up the jeopardy and then somebody else is going to bring you down, but to give you this little reminder that I'm in control. Maybe the Admiral is saying, if you go against me on this enclosure scheme, I can go after your career. And we know what that means. Look at the title of the novel, The the Threat of Yellowing Looms Large. Or to to borrow something that another character in a Columbo episode might have said, nice career you got there, Aubrey. Shame if anything were to happen to it." (laughs) <laughs> That's right. Oh. So Jack makes the declaration as the Admiral has dictated. Stranra is therefore content. And Jack takes his moment. It's a very poorly chosen moment, but he's got no choice. He's got to do this. He asks for leave to go ashore to take care of personal business. And it really upsets the Admiral. Not more leave, for God's sake. He says, It's a hard service. If this doesn't involve a sudden death, then no. It's a hard service. It's wartime. And as if to prove the point, Mike, we go straight to hard service in foul weather, right?
1: We do. We do. So the Admiral has the squadron Rigorously drilling in all weather, short of a close reef topsail blow, as as O'Brien writes, and and he calls any captains whose performance he doesn't like, calls them aboard the flagship, dresses them down. And Jack notices that kind of like the military, the drills he's seen in the past, that these drills have very little to do with combat or with war, uh, an activity yeah. that might easily spoil a uniform. O'Brien writes, you know, that these are all showy drills here. And O'Brien continues, Lord Stranra had little use for gunfire. He would certainly have grappled with the French had they come out. But during his very frequent drills, the great guns generally lay idle, shining wherever polish was in any way appropriate and housed with perfect regularity. It was something like the West Indian discipline transported to the channel where it made even less sense than it had in the Caribbean. So, Another one of these, you know, all for show things and, and, you know, this is, this is certainly not the way Jack thinks about things. No. Nevertheless, drill keeps Jack very busy. You know, he doesn't want to see a ship or a ship's company picked for harsh signals like make more sail or do you need assistance? I can I I love that we can have sarcasm, you know, even even signal flags the same way we can uh you know troll each other on on chat here. Uh, yeah. however, Jack had a fair number of landsmen aboard the Bologna. And more importantly, you know, he never drilled them in all this stopwatch showy performance in anything other than gunnery. You know, he drilled them where it made sense to Jack to drill them. Therefore, the Bolognas' barge was often among those being summoned, so the rough-tongued admiral could tell their captain all their faults. So, here we go. Still, still in hot water. Yeah,
0: yeah. And like you say, Mike, being lashed by the tongue of the admiral, and also, I think, as he reflects on the letter from Sophie, being lashed even more harshly, being touched even more deeply. You might say by the words from her letter. And really interesting here, O'Brien says his mind was taken up with the letter and the stranger who had written it. The stranger who had written it. So in somebody's mind, this whole episode puts Jack and Sophie apart from each other and puts her in the role of being a stranger. Jack considered many possibilities and they all caused immense sadness for him altering with a greater frustration that would take the form of a longing for battle. And again, Mike, we've, we've seen this before Jack and other, uh, manly males in the world of Navy and in, in the world of the Navy, when something goes wrong for them in life ashore, they want to sublimate it by engaging in violence. People who knew Jack could see it. And even the captain of the fleet who didn't know him handled him with care. And we go back to the immediate family of the Bellona and Jack's followers here for the the button on this scene. Jack, it says, didn't actually punish anyone on his own quarter deck, but he would occasionally clap his jaws shut on an intended rebuke. And Stephen's not there to observe it, so we go to Killick and Bondon. Killick says, I hope the captain don't explode. And Bondon says, he pities the poor bugger that the captain explodes upon. Mm. So isolation and really kind of grave self-examination for Jack here. This idea of Sophie becoming a stranger really bothers me. You, know, you, you can interpret the word in different ways. Stranger in the sense of is what she's doing unfamiliar or unexpected? Well, I, I don't think it's a surprise that Sophie responds the way that she does. But maybe it's that Jack realizes that this event, and if he had some self-awareness, maybe he'd realize that his conduct Has made a stranger of her. And he's reflecting not on the cause of the letter, but on the result. And and, and maybe on the actions of other people as well. Mike, what do you think?
1: Well, yeah, I I can't help but wonder too that, you know, listening to the sound of the beginning of that letter, you know, I can't help but hear Mother Williams' voice in Sophie's ear in the midst of all this. Not only did she find the letters and take them to her, but here, here am I, Mother Williams, in my misery let me have you join me, my dear. Step in, because let me tell you <laughs> where, where, where this is yeah. and where this leads you. So it'll be just you and me from now on. Forget that, Captain. I was right all along. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, f- finally, we get a little insight into how Jack feels about this. And it's very striking uh, when we hear Patrick O'Brien describing the emotions that are dominating Jack's thoughts right now. It's Sunday. And the Bellona Riggs Church, he reads the Articles of War and feels better after the service. But coming back to the cabin and making room for his prayer book, he uncovers Sophie's letters and, in the words of the text, the sense of desolation, fury, and extreme distress returned with even greater force. So that's a lot for Jack to cope with. That's a lot for us to cope with. So why don't we take a break? regain our composure and we'll be right back after this short break if you're enjoying the podcast please come and join our supporters on patreon go to patreon.com forward slash lovers so welcome back from the break we hope that you've managed to come to terms with the situation that Jack is in for yourselves. But Mike, let's you and I talk about this. You mentioned earlier on, like I'm not sure who Jack is at this point. He's received this great blow from Sophie. He's rationalized it to himself in the ways that we've heard about. And the emotions that he's experiencing are desolation, fury, and distress. There, there are some emotions missing, I think, from there as well that maybe we should talk about. But what do you think O'Brien is doing as he... Uh, shares this episode in Jack's character?
1: You know, it's, it's really interesting, Ian. I mean, it wasn't that long ago we had Jack and Stephen kind of coming back after being gone for a long time. And one of, uh, you know, as they go ashore, there's a captain that Jack knows who's been gone for two years. His wife is very pregnant And he and Stephen were talking about it. And Jack was saying, well, you know, I tried to explain to this guy, hey, you don't certainly follow this moral code, this, you know, your your marital vows when you're on the seas. And your wife did the same. And you got to see that what's good for the goose is good for the gander here. Kind of. I don't think Jack used that phrase. But Stephen was blown away. He says, you know, do you really think that, brother? And Jack said, yes, I do. He said, now, but you won't like that. I also said, I'll be your second. We'll go shoot the guy. So. You know, it's clear that, you know, Jack has grown, but he still has as as you say, it he still has this kind of code. And and O'Brien had referenced that just a little bit, that, you know, he, he doesn't feel any guilt over this affair. He doesn't feel any, you know, what he feels is foolish for leaving the letters there. And we had that that phrase that said, you know, by his code, a man who was directly challenged must in honesty engage. Anything else would be intolerably insulting. And I'm thinking he's not only doing this with Amanda, he's kind of doing this with Sophie. It sounds like, you know, there's yeah. a little bit of him that's like, oh, yeah, you know, you're going to throw down the gauntlet here. Well, then and, and all this thinking that, he, you know, this enlightened, older, mature, you know, kind of. Self-reflecting Jack that he had with his captain seems to be out the window here. He does not like where he is, but he doesn't feel any guilt or remorse. It sounds like over it, and you know, as you said, he's thinking about the letters and and what happened, not thinking about what happened that led to the letters.
0: <laughs> right. So, and I, I, first of all, I'm I'm worried a little bit about the character of Sophie. I'll, I'll confess. Because it, it seems to me that even though she's absolutely right and you know using all of her agency as a character to express what she wrote in the letter, and I can't think any of us would advise a female friend of ours to write anything less excoriating in a letter, I don't think we're being set up for Sophie to win here, let's put it that way. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it, it bothers me and, I, and maybe that's deliberate and we're, we're seeing that you know this these two characters in this marriage, can't get along um by relying on kind of the the absolute judgment of the outside world they're gonna have to figure it out for themselves and jack is gonna is gonna carry with him all the discredit that he's earned up to this point and something's got to give and i have a feeling that it's not going to be jack at least the way he's feeling right now yeah so that bothers me (laughs) Well, I do think,
1: Ian, that what this comes back to for me, and I, I got so caught up like you, you know, in in where Jack is and where Sophie is, and is this true to their characters? And then I think I did step back just a bit and go, but what this really is for me is what I love about Patrick O'Brien. This is the human condition. This is what imperfect beings we are. and And I can't help yeah. but I read absolutely into this my own lifetime of, you know, kind of going through tough times, writing journals and, and going back and going, oh, gosh, you know, I see where this bad thing happened and what I learned from it. And then, you know, reading like a, a year or two later, oh, my God, I did the same thing as if I didn't know this lesson whatsoever. Oh, my God. And then I did it again. <laughs> and, then, and then I went to therapy. And, you know, in Jack and Sophie, these two people who really love each other, who yeah. Jack with his code and the way he's learned for men and women to kind of engage, if you will, as he said, and get along. Yeah. Sophie, with all she's learned about, don't know about where babies come from, don't know about sex, don't know about any of this stuff. I'm completely shocked about all this. I've been you know, told all this stuff is awful, awful. You know, and I'm thinking... My God, this is O'Brien saying, yeah, this is the world we live in. You know, you know, Jack's friend is like, oh, yeah, caught in adultery. Me, too. Who I'm sitting here going, oh, (laughs) great letter from the family, from the wife, from the kids. Oh, adultery all the time. Yeah, I hate getting caught in that. And it's like, ah, these (laughs) worlds, these worlds. And so, you know, again, tip of the hat, Patrick O'Brien. Amazing.
0: Yeah. So it's funny, you're just making me think all the way back to Master and Commander and Stephen and Jack debating on identity, and identity is what others think of you. I've I've also heard the saying very often, you know, you are what you repeatedly do. And Jack's getting a lesson here for for good and for ill in what his identity is. And that's pretty tough. It sits sits awkwardly with him and it sits awkwardly with us as well. Right. (sighs) Well...
1: You know, I, I can't help but wonder how Jack's really feeling, Ian. What's going on with him here, with all this code and challenge?
0: Well, it's it, it's, it's a sure sign when Jack is not feeling great that he's off his food. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens as we move into the next part of the story here. He sends back his breakfast, the congealed eggs, uneaten. And he sees the Admiral signaling the squadron to proceed in line abreast. Bellona's going to be at the southern tip of this group of ships heading due southwest. Jack and Harding and the master are looking grave. They're thinking about the weather. Remember, we're out where there's heavier weather typically. The glass is dropping. There are low clouds. The tide is going out. And there are these streaks on the surface apparently rising up from the depths. On board the flagship, the Charlotte, Harding had learned the exercise to test how fast and how accurately signals can travel from one end of the squadron to the other and back again. And after a lot of nagging from the flagship... The squadron is in as straight a line as possible and there's a signal to tack together. So the Admiral is playing these kind of Caribbean flash, you know, show and discipline kind of games here. There's a second gun as apparently one ship on the far eastern end has been slow or missed the signal or perhaps had already mixed their grog and was so infuriated by the untimely order that it delayed out of some kind of stubbornness. Meanwhile, as all of this kind of soap opera is going on with the kind of petty disobedience in the squadron here, the weather is getting thicker. Jack calls for preventer stays and Harding says, we'll soon be heading in for Keller's Island to shelter from the sea.
1: So Jack spots hints of whiteness over the starboard bow and he orders the helm ported and so he's, you know, he thinks he's seen something here. As, as they slow down, he looks through the telescope with his good eye. You know, all of a sudden there's this blinding squall of rain and sleet and snow. It, it starts all together. It passes and Callow says he thought that he saw the Monmouth signal tack all together just before she vanished in this squall. And you know, Jack says, you know, I, I don't see anything. And we we kind of you know reminded of, of Nelson a little bit. And he asks Harding, "Did you see anything?" Harding says, "No, I, I didn't see anything." So Jack has Callow make the signal, enemy in sight, two leagues southwest by south, heading northwest. And then he orders the reef shaken out, sets a course to intercept what he believes is a vessel over there. And you know, I'm thinking to myself, well. If you guys can't see the other ships, they probably can't see your signal. But yeah. everyone now on the on the, the Bologna is, is now running to the sides here. Some of them even escaping from the sick berth because it's, you know, the words getting around here that the captain thinks there's a prize on the horizon or, you know, an enemy ships here. And, you know, for this crew, as for so many, Jack still has this status of a mythical being. Who you know? Who can almost you know smell or or have prescience about a prize or an enemy ship here? But it's fascinating. This Jack, you know, I don't see anything. What do you
0: think? Well, it's funny. This, this is the payoff from the plant right at the beginning of the chapter when we got reminded that Jack's still got this problem with his eyes. It's also, and, and Jack would appreciate this. It's a bit of the Nelson touch, you know, Nelson at Copenhagen putting his. Spyglass to his bad eye and saying, I see no ships. It's exactly, potentially. I mean, either everything is played out in good faith here and Jack genuinely didn't see the signal to attack and genuinely is following his prize hunting instinct. Or he's thinking, screw you, old man. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm Jack Aubrey and this is my identity. I chase prizes. (laughs) And he's putting his telescope to his bad eye (laughs) and saying, no, 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 head over this way. Anyhow, they're not disappointed. Uh, The the chase is a ship called Les Deux Frères, the Two Brothers. I'm going to come back to the name in a minute because there's a fun connection there. The Two Brothers, she's a powerful, fast-sailing French privateer frigate. And we've had a few of those, these big, powerful, dangerous, deadly privateers that the French have taken to putting onto the ocean here. She's intent, so intent, in fact, on chasing a merchantman that she doesn't spot the billowner. When she finally does, she fires at the merchantman as one kind of last fling, Misses and then turns to run, firing some ranging shots at the Bellona, maybe helping to protect the significant prizes that she already has on board. The Ringle is nearby, but remains out of gunshot on her starboard bow. So I, I just want to talk about the name Le Deux Frères, if that's okay for a minute. Was it one or two chapters ago we picked up that some of what's going on here, this action on the Breton Coast on the Breast Blockade, was similar to what is written about in some of the Hornblower books, And this name, Les Deux Frères, rang a bell. And actually, in Hornblower and the Hotspur, which also takes place on the Brest blockade off the coast of Brittany, there is a fishing boat called Les Deux Frères. There are other reasons why O'Brien might have reached out for the ship name Les Deux Frères, but I'm really tempted by the idea that he had been rereading some Forester and dropped in a little bit of a tribute, even an unconscious one here. Now, Les Deux Frères in the world of Hornblower was a Breton fishing boat that, was a source of fresh fish and then eventually intelligence for Commander Hornblower. Um, there was a real life Le De Frere. There wasn't there, Mike?
1: There was, there was. But, I, you know, I, I love your, you know, your nod back to uh, Forrester and Hornblower because the real life Le De Frere, you know, uh, she was a, a 1784 80-gun ship of the line who mm. uh, even the French renamed uh, to Juste in uh, 1792, she was captured Interestingly, by HMS Queen Charlotte, who's the flagship in our story here. Ah. And and you know, in the in the glorious first of June in 1794, and she, you know, she became a British ship named HMS Zeus. So uh, you know, perhaps it's both a nod back to Forrester as well as a little O'Brien joke with the Charlotte being in this one here. So who knows? It just it all ties ah. together neatly.
0: It does, it does. Anyhow, this this privateer, the, the two brothers, Lady Frere flees the scene, but seems likely that she's not going to escape the much heavier Bellona in these heavy seas. And we heard a couple of chapters ago about how big ships sometimes have the disadvantage because they can't use their lower gun tiers because of heavy waves. Jack calls the gunner, tells him not to open the lower deck gun ports, just like uh, the, the the action that we heard about Les Trois de L'Homme a, a couple of chapters ago. He says, don't open the lower gun deck ports, but are you entirely happy with your Tompians? These are the wooden stoppers that go into the gun muzzles, given all the wet that there is about. And the gunner replies, if any misses fire, you may call me Jack Pudding. And this is a slightly flipped remark, certainly tempting fate and going against all traditional naval superstition. He looks horrified when he realizes quite what he's done without duly you know, grasping a belaying pin. His possible explanation, though, is cut short by freakish seas flooding over the quarterdeck. The Bellona is a big ship. Seas crashing over the quarterdeck means this is big weather. Then, an even more freakish carronade ball from the privateer strikes the wheel. The wheel is shattered. The two quartermasters, I think, are uninjured, but the wheel is shattered. The Bellona temporarily loses control, puts before the wind... And then starts to come up the other side while the, the, the real seamen manage to brail up the mizzen topsail and everybody works to bring the ship under control. There are tiller purchases shipped down below so that the ship can be steered by orders and people pulling on ropes. The privateer forges ahead while all this is going on, but seeing the Bellona finally square away and come up close to her with the gun ports open and the guns run out, the privateer comes up into the wind, strikes her colors, and lays to. So, Mike, at, at least temporarily for now, a bit of a victory for Jack, right?
1: It is. It is. You know, it's kind of amazing. You know, from this little whiteness on the horizon to boy, we've taken this privateer. You know, and there's been a little hint that it's heavily laden with you know a lot of of very valuable merchandise here. Well. Jack sends the ringle and his blue cutter with a well-armed prize crew under Miller and Miller's supposed to take the prize into Falmouth and then bring the cutter back and bring the frigates master, the officers and papers for this privateer. But in the rough seas, it takes the rest of the afternoon to to bring the cutter back on board and get her triply tied down here. So, Harding is below with the Frenchman. The officers, you know, he he has pretty good French. He's questioning them. And Jack tells Mr. Woodbine, the master, to steer for Keller's Island, you know, that place we had heard where the, the admiral usually has the fleet, you know, mm-hmm. kind of go hide behind here while the seas are so bad. And the master explains that, that he's very happy about the prize. But he thinks that they should follow the prize into Falmouth. And he goes on to say, you know, all the extensive damage that he believes they are are about to hear about once the reports come in and are likely to sustain if they head back for Keller's Island. He's saying that, you know, the blow is not yet finished. And, and, you know, we're probably going to see a lot worse seas here. So he's not really pleased about this. He says, uh, you know, he says that this the steering that they have, you know, with the sheet of purchase, you know, will not serve in what he calls an all-night long howling tempest bearing dead on ocean with its cruel reefs. Mm. And he can't imagine trying to avoid a wreck that the way they're having to steer right now. And he says there, there's going to be plenty of wrecks before morning. Now I don't know how this plays into it. O'Brien says that Jack notices that Woodbine's clearly been drinking. So I don't know whether that's Jack saying, you know, maybe. It, but, you know, Jack does say we must do our best. And, and I couldn't help but thinking to myself here, here's Jack who kind of, you know, poo-poo's the Admiral's drills, doesn't see their point in terms of battle readiness. But, you know, here's a Jack that the Admiral doesn't see. He's got a badly damaged ship. He's still going to report for duty. He's going to go into the storm and do that. And, you know, this Admiral who seems to think that Jack is not a seaman, you know, all that. I I wish he could see this. But, um, you know, this is Jack's dedicated service. However, I'm a little bit worried. And and the thought did cross my mind. You know, Jack was kind of, you know, once battle, he didn't get to blow up anything or, or shoot anything to speak of. It's, is this is this going back into the storm part of part of his Jack's emotional condition now? Like, yeah, I love a squall,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes you think: Is there even a self destructive aspect to this? Have have we got a ch- touch of the James Dillons brewing for Jack here? Yeah, goodness me. O'Brien tells us that they did their best, even though that was really not enough. There was no way to beat into the blow when they are near Dushent, even if they'd been undamaged with a full suit of storm canvas. The galley was flooded. The crew had only managed to eat wet ship's bread in the last few days, and they were utterly exhausted. The ship was taking on more water than she could pump out, and e- even the seamanship of uh, of a Jack Aubrey, I think, starts to find its limits here. When light starts to show in the east, they get their bearings and they sail for Corsand Bay. So they're heading back across the channel, across the Western approaches from Brittany towards Cornwall and Devon. Other damaged ships from both squadrons are already there and all the places are taken up. I'm just having a flashback here to another episode in a Hornblower book where the Breast squadron is blown off and they all rendezvous back in Torbay. So there's a very similar thing going on here. This must have happened in real life really quite often with winter storms. The commissioner at Corsand Bay, Jack's old friend, says the Alexandria won't take long and they'll take the Bellona after her. He means in terms of refit. He notes that Jack looks deadbeat. So he suggests a hot bath, a good breakfast and a long sleep at the George. And Jack says, well, I have to write to the Admiral first. And the commissioner adds, well, why not send a note to Mrs. Aubrey as well and do remember me kindly to her, which is a little twang, I think, of regret for us and as well as for Jack.
1: Jack's letter to the Admiral outlines the damage they suffered in the blow, but it doesn't mention chasing and taking the prize. But he, you know, he also encloses the Bologna's log and, you know, he's kind of reading back over that. And the log does recount sighting and taking the prize and how valuable she is, says that she's filled with gold dust and ivory from three prior prizes that she'd taken, but doesn't mention the damage to the Bologna's wheel. The log also records the the subsequent storm damage that Jack had written about in the letter. And Jack rereads the letter, realizes that it doesn't really coincide with the log, but he feels too heavy and stupid to rewrite it. And so he he seals the letter. And just as he's about to walk out, he remembers he's forgotten to ask the Admiral to send the Ringel back so he can make his next rendezvous to pick up Stephen at the dark of the moon. So he unseals the note, you know, goes back in, writes this note, you know, the additional note to the admiral, and then burns his fingers, resealing the letter, cusses, and Harding hears him and goes in. He didn't realize that Jack was even still aboard. He thought he'd gone ashore. And so I can't help but wonder, Ian, is I'm reading this, that this thing of, okay, wait a minute, the log says one thing, the letter says another thing. We know that Jack's already in trouble here. I, I wasn't yeah. really comfortable with this, you know, oh I'm just stupid, I'll just send them off anyways.
0: Well, I think here Jack is indulging in an old British naval custom which is called clearing your yard arm, which means uh writing notes and signals that absolve you from blame. But no doubt, well-advised yardarm clearing, but that's what it's going to look like. And he's doing a, a bit of an imperfect job of it. And remember that he's also responding to the hint that he and we got from Captain Calvert earlier on in that little pseudo court-martial hearing with the Admiral where they said, logs and journals are, are taken into account when you're considering these kind of questions, if there's any suspicion of any kind of misbehavior. Now, Jack tells Harding that he's taking the letter to the Ringle, he's resting and then heading to Wolcombe, for urgent family affairs. He says to Harding to look after the ship's repairs while he's away and Harding offers to take the letter so that Jack can get some rest and hopefully he'll wake up, as he says, a new man. And O'Brien just quickly describes the routine that Jack does actually go through. He sleeps in his bath, in his bed at the George, and in the chase on the way to Wilcombe. This chase loses a wheel in a town five miles outside of Woodcombe, Wilcombe, so Jack finally has to spend the night there and take a horse to get into Wilcombe in time for breakfast the next morning. And Mike, we've been in the situation before when Jack is coming back to the family home and not knowing what to expect. This is an even colder and more uneasy moment for me. He's riding into the stable yard and Charlotte sees him from the kitchen doorway. Her face expresses no pleasure and she shouts into the house, it's Papa, and vanishes. George, his son, runs out. He's friendly, bids him good morning. Um, Jack asks where Mama is, and he learns that she hasn't come down yet, drinking tea upstairs, uh, and that Diana and Bridget, and Mrs. Oaks, had just left in Diana's new coach, headed for Lyme. And here we go. Jack has to step upstairs and see what's to be said to Sophie.
1: Yeah. Jack hurries upstairs, walks in on Sophie and her mother, drinking tea side by side, copying letters. Jack notes Sophie's lack of bloom and color and, O'Brien writes, the presence of some quality he had never seen in her at any time. Now, Mrs. Williams puts her hand on her head and runs out of the room. O'Brien says she would no more be seen without a cap than without any upper garment at all. So we we get a little bit of this you know, kind <laughs> of you, where Sophie's attitude about the human body <laughs> and, you know, and relationships and yeah. everything come from. Sophie asks what Jack's doing there and Jack says well the balloon is in dock for repairs and he's come to spend a few days at home and she replies not with my goodwill and and Jack continues but but above all i've come to ask your pardon to say i'm very sorry indeed and to beg that you will forgive me and she repeats mechanically not with my goodwill and adds that if the admiral who'd been renting Ashgrove had agreed to leave before the end of his lease term she wouldn't even be here well sophie then speaks in kind of a hurried voice and says here look here all these are the letters your mistress's letters and here's the ring you gave me before god's altar before god's altar and you come here into this house and she's you know she's threshing this box of letters into jack's hand and her ring and jack says gently oh sophie my dear and he comes closer looking into her face Mrs. Williams opens the door and Jack pushes it shut and bolts it. And, and we, you know, here we're coming up to you know, at the end of another, such an incredible chapter here.
0: Yeah. Jack closes the chapter out for us. Oh, come Sophie, he said again. But she cried out that he should never have come here. It was most improper, most indelicate that he must go away at once. Some of this was less than coherent, but there was no mistaking the vehemence of resentment he fell back and said, is that indeed all you have to say to me, Sophie? Yes, it is, she cried, and I never want to see you again. Then be damned to you for a hard, ill-natured and pitiless unforgiving shrew, he said, anger rising at last, and he walked out, leaving her, bowed over the miserable letters, utterly appalled by his words and her own. End of chapter six. Oh, Mike, this is not a good look. This is not a good moment for Team Jack, right?
1: No, no, I don't think so either. I mean, Sophie seems so much farther emotionally from Jack than I I ever remember. I mean, you know, there have been rough spots before, but, you know, not only the way Sophie is and you know we'll have to come back to that but you know she's got her mother sitting her miserable mother as I mentioned before sitting right here next to her yeah. who's never been a friend to Jack even at the best times and, and and certainly currently is not this is not the best of times and so you know Mrs. Williams right there whispering into her ear you know perhaps you know they're both copying letters here I'm wondering if she's the one that dictated some of that that to me does not bode well here yeah. for Jack
0: No, it doesn't. And like I said earlier on, I'm worried about the position of Sophie. Not worried from the point of view of, I I think O'Brien's taking a lot away from her here. So in that last paragraph there, she's described as being less than coherent and being resentful. And Jack gets to call her all these pretty foul names, hard, ill-natured, pitiless, unforgiving. So we're ending this chapter here with not only a a a big gap opening up in the relationship between Jack and Sophie, but a positioning of Sophie as somebody who's an antagonist for Jack. And that's a, that's a really horrible thing. It leaves the question open. Is there any coming back from this? Where are we? Chapter six. I think there's time in this book, but also there's plenty of time for this to run and run. O'Brien likes to drag out sometimes these kind of, uh, these, these emotional lows, especially for Jack. I'm not sure where Jack's friends are right now because he's always been able to depend on Sophie for a certain kind of companionship. He can't anymore. And and Stephen's ashore. So, what next for Jack?
1: Yeah. And I'm I'm kind of the last line of the chapter to me was kind of, you know, enigmatic. It says, you know, and he walked out leaving her bowed over the miserable letters utterly appalled by his words and by her own. And I kept thinking to myself, is Jack utterly appalled or is Sophie utterly appalled or are they both utterly appalled? And I I don't know. It's just this, you know, it's kind of like you said, we don't know where O'Brien's going to go with this. And he does like to let it run sometimes.
0: Yeah. If this were, if this were post-captain, or reverse of the medal, we might we might stay here for a few chapters. Or if this were, I don't know, the Commodore or the far side of the world, we might breeze straight past this. If this were the Mauritius Command, we get straight into action. And it's, it's a little bit unfair that we, we know, looking at our Kindles and looking at our audiobook playlists, that we've got four chapters left to go. So we start to wonder how much of this really deep and important drama between these two characters are we going to get, and how much... Are we're gonna to have to have this push to one side to be resolved a book, two books, three books hence. Um, Jack is in a lot of trouble. He has, even with all of his yardarm clearing, he's still open to the accusation that he disregarded a signal. He's already in trouble anyway with the commander of the squadron. He's run off to take this prize um, thereby confirming everybody's worst suspicions about his conduct as a as a commander in the Navy. In baseball, where would you say he's at, Mike, as a batter at the plate here?
1: Well, you know, for me, this could easily be strike three. And and if I was going to really stretch that, (laughs) I would say maybe strike four with the Admiral here. (laughs) So, you know, that doesn't (laughs) sound good. And I'm, I'm fascinated, too, thinking, okay, so he's got Sophie thing. He's got the Admiral Jeopardy. And now Sophie's talking about going back to Ashgrove, which means she's not selling it, which means Jack doesn't have the money to pay yeah. his legal judgments. And we haven't heard how his other remaining oh, case or yeah. cases have been decided. So you know, I'm still thinking another huge bit of Jeopardy hanging over Jack's head is you your team Jack, not not all going well here. Could it get even worse with all this stuff going on? What if the Admiral doesn't send the ringle back as requested? What if the, you know, the Bologna's repairs aren't in time to rendezvous with Stephen at the dark of the moon? You know, we still got all of Jack's anxiety and dread of having Stephen, you know, on a foreign shore. Is any of that going to come to prove I'm, you know, I'm really, you know, this thing has gone completely differently. You know, I, I, we were worried about Jack being yellowed. And I, now I'm starting to think that might be the, you know, that's a ways in the future. That might be the least of your worries, young man.
0: <laughs> wow. Mike, you're absolutely right. You have put your finger on it there. So um, looking at how we've taken care of these matters in the past, I, I think it seems to me that there's only one way to find out. There's only one way to resolve this. What do you say, Mike, next week to just a little bit more of the great Patrick O'Brien?
1: Oh, I would like that of all things.
0: Anyhow, Jack, Jack makes, makes this. De- oh, sorry, got.
2: <laughs>
0: sorry, we got stuck by the delay. No, no, finish it up. Take us through. Okay, you? cool. Okay. So Jack makes the declaration as the admiral has dictated.